0: You are listening to a podcast from the BMJ. If you are listening to this feeling the effects of excessive chocolate egg consumption, hunger is probably far from your mind. But the rising cost of food means that the spectre of going without is looming ever closer for many people. Between March 2010 and March 2011, the cost of maize and wheat doubled. This is just the latest in a series of price hikes in food staples. In an editorial published this week in the BMJ, Professor Joachim von Braun sets out some of the problems that this price rise is going to cause. Last week, I talked to David Nabarro, the UN Secretary-General's Special Envoy on Food Security and Nutrition. He gave me the lowdown on the subject. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, David.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. Um,
0: So food prices have doubled, particularly basic things like wheat, rice and maize in the last year. Could you just give us an overview as to why that's happening?
1: Well, if we look at the pattern of food prices over the last 20 years, we see that in general, they've stayed quite low uh, for until about 2008, when they started to rise quite sharply on global markets. And this was the price of all the major food groups, the grains and the pulses, uh, as well as products like meat and sugar. We find that in general, food prices go at roughly the same rate in terms of rising and falling as oil prices do, uh, especially when oil is above about 60 70 dollars per barrel. And so it's not surprising to us, therefore, that that, at that time when oil was climbing very high, that food climbed as well. Uh, What are the reasons for this? Well, firstly, in today's world, there is quite a tight balance between food supply and demand. I'm not implying that the world is actually short of food, because if all the food that is grown were distributed equally, there would be enough to go around at this time. But there are certain situations in which we can see tightness of supply as demand grows. And this is particularly the case for some grains. So in 2008, rice prices rose rapidly because there was a perception that rice was getting in short supply. There were uh, some countries that actually stopped exporting rice because of this. The market became very thin. Uh, Some countries paid rather high prices for rice that they needed to ensure that their people could feed and the result was that the price really did shoot up very rapidly. We have a second challenge which is that you only need a drought or a major climatic event that reduces production in, in a key producing part of the world trigger price rises and at that time in 2008 we would had some harvest failures particularly in Australia and in addition there is a a, a growing trend that people who are trying to invest cash will actually put it into food if they perceive there's a likelihood that they can make money out of a rapid price swing what we sometimes call it speculation, mm. and indeed some financial investment companies have developed what are called derivatives that are based on commodities like food and oil uh, that are the basis for the investment strategies of a number of people, and that's particularly important in a situation where stocks and shares don't present promising investments. Now, as we've moved through the period between 2008 and now, food prices have calmed down, as have other commodity prices, rather in parallel with the economic recession that the world has experienced. But during the latter part of 2010, they have started to climb again. And the prices of some foods are now higher than they were even in 2008, particularly maize, wheat, uh, sugar, pulses, and and meat. Uh, Now, this is not everywhere in the world and so for a minute I'd like to dissect this out. What we see is that the global market prices rise but in some places they're not as high because local harvests have been very good, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and for some crops like rice, they're not rising either. But we also have to remember that even a small rise, say 10 or 20% in the cost of staples, can have a major impact on the livelihoods of people who live on around $1 or $2 per day, and who are spending about 75% of their income on food. And so the World Bank, who've done some quite careful economic analyses based on the price indices developed by the Food and Agriculture Organization, has concluded that price rises in the last six months have probably led 40 million people go newly into poverty and we have anecdotal reports from many countries now confirmed by the world food Programme's vulnerability assessment mapping that there are millions of households that as a result of these recent rises in food prices that are having to forego either a whole meal or elements of a meal each day and also having to make sacrifices about the health and nutrition of their children who have special food needs. So we're seeing rising prices, we're seeing prices that are volatile, and that means moving up and down, partly because of speculation on them, and we're seeing consequences of these rising prices and volatility, particularly for the world's poorest people. Last point on this is that We would like to hope that rising prices will create a much better market environment for some of the poorer farmers in our world who are not really getting the best productivity out of their land and not getting the best income and benefits as a result of being food growers. This is about the 500 million smallholder farmers in our world, most of whom are women. But there are real difficulties with enabling farmers to take advantage of new market opportunities because firstly, it means quite high risk for them and so we need mechanisms to protect them against risk. And secondly, they don't easily get hold of the inputs like seeds or fertilizers or water or credit that they need to be able to take advantage of higher prices. So it tends to be farmers in the wealthier parts of the world who benefit from this situation. The last point on on supply uh, and demand is there has been an increase in the conversion of cereal crops into biofuels in recent uh, uh, years and this has probably added to the current tightness of supply on on maize uh, as well as there was a a serious problem of wheat uh, harvest in the former Soviet Union and uh, we are still, I think, worried about whether or not the very heavy demand for increased use of cereals for biofuels in some countries is actually uh, a good thing. Um, on balance, I think that it, in the current environment, it's not so helpful.
0: Mm. So you've painted a really complex picture there. There are fluctuations in, in climate, local climate, that, that affect availability of foods, financial. Um, Markets then are are amplifying changes, but then you need those markets to to help protect farmers from things going on. So it's a, it's a complicated thing to try and get a hold of and and really regulate food pricing. Um, in his editorial, von Braun has raised some things that he thinks need to be done, um, but he doesn't suggest how that could be done or what's being done at the moment to do that.
1: You know, I'd like to uh, with, I'd like to take advantage of the fact that we're doing a number of issues together. To firstly say that I agree it's complicated, and I, I think it's important we understand that many of these issues around commodities are complex. But that doesn't mean that we can't do anything about it. Sure. From my perspective, the key requirement is to try to make certain that markets work. And that means that there is an investment in production, particularly local-level production by smallholder farmers and particularly in uh, Africa. You see, most of Africa's food is actually grown by African farmers locally and marketed locally. And if they are in a better position to be able to develop extra capacity, mount a supply response, and even produce for export so that Africa becomes a net exporter rather than a net importer of food. That is an incredibly useful buffer for the food situation in our world. Mm. And there has been inadequate investment in agriculture as a means for poverty reduction, food production, and environmental sustainability over the last 30 years. That situation has changed, African agriculture grew at 5% last year, and that's largely because many governments have prioritized agriculture and they happen to have pretty good weather in 2010. So let's put us, number one, making certain that the supply side is working, greater investment in agriculture, particularly by smallholders. Number two is making sure that the markets work making sure that prices are sending the right signal to the producers so that the producer will know as prices rise that it is appropriate to be thinking about growing more of certain foods. Now, if prices are rising because people who have nothing to do with food are betting on whether which direction prices are going to go in as part of a way of making money, then that is unfair in every respect and actually wrong. It's unfair because it means that the markets are just not going to work properly. And it's wrong because it means that People are paying more money for food simply because they're fueling somebody else's way of making cash, some pension fund somewhere. So there has to be some effort to establish some measure of control over the use of food commodities as a means for speculation and and investment. Now that's difficult because you don't want in any kind of controlling system to impact on the people who should be trading on the market, the people who are either Uh, actually involved in the fundamentals of production and consumption or who are hedging because they need to be able to try to smooth the costs of food for uh, a processing system or something that they're using. Mm -hmm. Now this is something that the uh, G20 group of nations are looking at very intensively this year within the context of other issues around the financial sector. It's not really an issue for agriculture, it's not an issue certainly for people like myself so i'm presenting you the problem but i'm saying also that something is being done about it we can also act at the local level to try to help smooth food prices particularly through the year so that the consequences both for smallholder farmers when they're trying to sell and for um consumers when they're buying can be made less that can be done through warehouse schemes and other techniques that mean that the farmers are more likely to be able to get a stable price for their food, especially if there's advanced purchase on that food. And in order for such schemes to work at the local level, it's absolutely vital to have better information about stocks, about what's being traded, and about market prices, and making that available through cell phones or other techniques as the Ethiopian Commodity Exchange has started to do. Uh, Other actions that we can do on the supplier side are to consider whether or not it would be uh, possible to loosened what they call the mandate on food going into biofuel and biofuel content of uh, gasoline in different countries Uh, and that's again being looked at now and then very importantly to keep markets functioning properly we have to make it perhaps less attractive for countries that are worried about food supply to impose export bans in an arbitrary way because they can send signals into the global system and mean that people will uh, uh, start betting on food and imagining that it's going to rise. Mm. Uh, So this mix of investment, of work to try to limit the speculation on food prices by people who have nothing to do with the food trade, uh, the effort to try to Uh, improve the functioning of local markets through information uh, to try to reduce the likelihood of export bans and to limit the amount of food that has to go into biofuels or other non-food uses are actions that countries are putting into place and we're seeing that this is really capturing the imagination of governments and also the international community so it's a big area for work this year as I said within the context of the G20 now, one thing we must do within this context is to make certain that these fluctuations in food prices, the rising prices, do not penalize poor people who have nothing to do with this problem, but who just end up having to deal with the consequences of having to pay 20 or 30 percent more for basic foodstuffs. And that means having safety nets that are targeted, that protect them against the effects of rising food prices, and in particular, investing in nutrition for women and children because otherwise the consequences of this year's price volatility and rises can can be very long term because of the impact of undernutrition in infancy and childhood on later learning, earning capacity and even risk of chronic diseases. Mm. There are some countries that have done very well with handling these issues and I would highlight particularly Brazil which put reducing hunger as a high level goal for President Lula during his term of presidency it means working right across government and saying food and hunger reduction is a number one priority and i'm very interested that this last weekend i've just been in washington at the annual meetings of the world bank and the imf where for these people who are primarily ministers of finance and some of the ministers of development as well the major emphasis of this meeting which was covering all aspects of development and the economy with the inflationary potential of rising food prices and their damaging influence on the lives and well-being of the billion to two billion poor people in our world. So it's an issue that is capturing, once again, increased interest, but interest this time in ways that will lead us to doing something about it.
0: Okay. Thanks, David. You've covered an awful lot there. One thing I'd just like to, to pick up quickly is uh, you've said that growth in African food production or agriculture has gone by 5% um, year on year at the moment, which is uh, a lot. How is that being done? Is that novel techniques? Is it uh, new crop sources? Or is it much more simple?
1: If we look at what's been happening in African agriculture over the last 10 years, there's been an extraordinary transformation underway. Countries that had been paying very little attention to agriculture despite the fact that the majority of their potential economic growth could come from the land or the water. These countries had started to shift and to begin to recognize the potential. That's partly because of something called the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program that's been championed by the African Union. It's partly because of the enormous efforts of people like Kofi Annan and his African uh, Green Revolution campaign and it's partly because there has been just a a, a real recognition that without investments in in African agriculture, African nations have real problems with being able to insulate themselves from processes that go on elsewhere in the world. And Africa has land and water and potential and some very exciting climate opportunities Uh, that has been recognized. So Malawi for example has put agriculture very high on the priority list and also uh, reduction in malnutrition and they have managed to invest very successfully. But the same is the case for Uganda, for Ghana and for Senegal and it's these countries that have really grown. Now when you've got a sector that is growing at the rate I've just described You don't need to have vast amounts of state finance or development capital going in to take advantage of it. The private sector will come in uh, and there the issue then is for governments to make certain that private investment actually benefits the nation, actually benefits smallholders. And the big and exciting development in African agriculture investment is that it's put people first, it's put smallholders first, and women farmers first in many countries. Not all, I would say it's 10 to 12 African countries that are really moving like this, but it is the result of a policy change, of a very specific focus of investment, taking advantage of what's going on locally, and increasingly of public-private partnerships, for example, in southern Tanzania, in Mozambique, in Ghana, where Enlightened partnerships between government, private companies, farmers' organizations, and civil society make a difference. You've heard, everybody's heard about farmer groups, particularly women farmer groups in some countries, being able to come together and form cooperatives and credit schemes and so on. Well, that is now happening in many parts of Africa and is a very, very exciting transformation, something, again, that we've been discussing this last weekend because we do want to try to make sure that development finance, small amounts of development finance, can catalyze really good smallholder-focused partnerships and benefit women and improve nutrition at the same time.
0: Mm. So that's a really good example of um, good incentives. You mentioned before biofuels. Um, and how that might be a problem of, uh, in a way, perverse incentives going against uh, the production of food. What do you think should be done there? Well,
1: we're very cautious in the international community about making blanket statements about biofuels because, firstly, there is no doubt that that you can make biofuel quite efficiently from... uh, products that are agricultural products that are not primarily going to be used for food or if they are used for food they're not staples so Mm -hmm. sugar for example uh, you could make biofuel uh, ethanol out of sugar as brazil is doing without necessarily competing for cereal production and there's a lot of work on um, later generation biofuels that use plants that are not primarily food plants or making biofuels out of cellulose. So I wouldn't want to be making any blanket statements on this. At the same time, I am noticing certain anxiety about the use of corn to produce biofuels, particularly the very large amount of corn that is having to go into biofuel production in some industrialized nations, because that is tightening the market again. That is creating an inflationary pressure and it's that that uh, I think we need to look at not to say that biofuels are bad but to say when the market is tight when prices are starting to go up there should be some capacity for governments to be able to relax legal mandates that require a certain percentage of petrol at the pump to be made out of uh, um uh, made out of um uh, crops yeah. and uh, that's an issue that's being looked at and indeed to look at all these issues that require political action whether it's to do with export bans better information the kind of perverse incentives that you've just described improved market access and so on or even public-private partnerships the key is to get political engagement by countries ahead head of state level and to have a, a dialogue of a political kind to try to change the overall climate within which we're working. And that's where the, the G20 as a, a new force in international development and governance is so exciting because it consists of a, a mix of countries, not just the, the countries that traditionally had such a lot of power, the, the G7, the uh, sort of mostly industrialized countries. The G20 includes many emerging nations, particularly Brazil, uh, South Africa, India, China, and also the way in which France as president of this year's G20 is running it means that they also embrace other nations and regional groups uh, who are likely to be very much affected by these kinds of problems. So I'm very optimistic, not not just about what communities and governments can do at local level, and we're seeing that in some countries, particularly countries that are not at war or suffering other forms of political difficulty. But I'm also optimistic about the way in which regional organisations like the African Union, as I just mentioned, and global political processes are moving on these agendas. And I'm very inspired by, by what I heard last weekend, listening to some of the Ministers of Finance and Development talking about these issues.
0: David Damara thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. And the editorial that prompted that discussion by Joachim von Brunn is available now on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Join us next week for more from the world of medicine. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.